we plan to spend the next two or three days, inshallah, talking a little bit about Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. So I want to thank you all for having me. Um, and many of us know Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, and I think we know that he played a pivotal role in the advancement of deen. And this occurred on so many different levels. And if we look at his life very closely and we examine it, we'll find that there were certain qualities that he had that if we were to bring into our own life, we'd become very successful Muslims. And so over the course of tonight, tomorrow, and Sunday, inshallah, my hope is that we'll be able to cover three of these qualities. And the way we're going to do it is we're going to divide his life into three phases. The first phase, and this topic for tonight, is the phase as the facilitator. And then the next one will be his phase as the follower of the Prophet Sallallahu And then the, the third day will be his phase as a leader. So let's begin by talking about who Abu Bakr was in terms of as a facilitator. What I mean by this is that the way Abu Bakr in his early years was able to become such a prominent Sahabi, someone who we remember to this day, much of it is because he was someone who facilitated deen for other people. He was someone who facilitated deen for other people. And there's a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ that sort of highlights this principle. And I think if we keep this hadith in mind over the course of the session today, it will, it will make sense. In that hadith, the Prophet ﷺ says, That the inviter or the caller toward good is like the doer himself or herself. Meaning, if a person invites someone toward doing something good, then not only does the person who does the good get that reward, but the person who invites and encourages toward good also gets that reward. So for instance, if I was to encourage everyone that, look, maybe we should all spend five or ten minutes reciting Qur'an tonight, and everyone decides that they're going to spend five or ten minutes reciting Qur'an, now, not only do I get the reward of reciting, assuming I do as well, but for the 20 or 30 or 40 people that also recite Qur'an, that reward also goes into my account because I've now facilitated that particular act of worship. So one of the ways by which Abu Bakr becomes such a prominent Sahabi who becomes the leader of the Ummah eventually is by facilitating deen for other people. There's another hadith that resembles this. And the Prophet says, مَن Same concept, right? Which is that the person who guides toward good is like the person who does good. Right? There's like the person who does good. So what are the two ways in particular that Abu Bakr عنه, facilitated deen? Right? One, he was an emancipator of slaves. And the second way was that he called as many people as he could toward Islam in his early days. And I want to spend a few minutes talking about these two roles that he played and how this led him to being the facilitator of our deen, which eventually earned him such a high status, second to only the prophets. I mean, there's an agreement in our ummah that there is no individual who carries the maqam or the status of Abu Bakr. There's no one else who compares to Abu Bakr. Only the prophets are above Abu Bakr. And that's a big deal. So, we mentioned, the first is his role as an emancipator. Meaning, one of the things that Abu Bakr did in his early days was that he freed slaves whenever he could free them. Right? This was one of his, this was one of his, uh, one of the things that he would do consistently. So, let's take a step back. 
when Islam first came and the Prophet received Nubuwa, and now there were a couple of early people that accepted Islam. There was Khadija, his wife, Ali, his, uh, his cousin at the time, uh, Zaid, his servant that accepted Islam. Uh, and so there were just a handful of people and Abu Bakr عنه, accepted Islam as well. And there's no disagreement that the first adult male that accepted Islam or the first person outside of the household of the Prophet that accepted Islam was Abu Bakr. Right? So this is one quality which we're not going to cover today, but that is that if the Prophet said something, then Abu Bakr عنه, accepted it, including Islam. Now, Abu Bakr, once he accepted Islam, he did two things early on. He went and he freed slaves. And number two, he went and he facilitated deen for the rest of people. In terms of freeing slaves, it was known that Abu Bakr, once he heard or knew that there was an oppressed slave, a Muslim slave that was being oppressed by their, by their master, Abu Bakr made it a point to immediately go and purchase that person's freedom, enabling that person to then achieve their successes in deen. He would literally go around and if he heard of someone oppressed, he would immediately go and free that person. And whatever cost it would be, he would give that money. You know, it's said that he was very wealthy at the start of when he accepted Islam. At one point, he had 40,000 dirham, right? And at the time of Hijrah, he was down to about 5,000. It was because he was constantly spending on other people. In particular, he was spending on the freedom of other people. There's many examples of this. For one, for instance, he freed Bilal radiallahu anhu. We know Bilal who was that companion who initially was tortured by his master Umayyah bin Khalaf. You know, severely tortured. They used to, during the, during the uh, daytime, children would take a, uh, a, a collar around his neck and then they would drag him through the streets of Mecca just to humiliate him because all he, all he would say was Allah, Ahad, Ahad, Ahad. And in the hot sun, his, 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 uh, his master would take this big boulder and place it on his chest, his bare back chest, and his chest would basically be uh, on the scorching ground, and and it would uh, and he would be laid flat for for extended periods of time. It was this immense suffering. So when Abu Bakr radiAllahu anhu had heard about the torture that Bilal radiAllahu anhu was facing, this is the same Bilal who eventually goes and becomes the muaddin of our ummah, who gives the adhan first in Ma- in Medina, he gives the adhan in Mecca, and he's the first person who gave the adhan in Masjid al-Aqsa as well in Jerusalem. When, when they conquested uh, Jerusalem with Umar. So he goes to the master of, 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 of Bilal and he says, how much will it cost to, to, to save Bilal, to free Bilal? And Umayyah was like, this person, he said, you know, I'll give him for seven ruqiyas, which is like a, a tur- uh, let's say seven dollars. Just, you know, it's a, it's a measurement uh, in, 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 uh, of currency at the time. And so Abu Bakr, without hesitation, gives that money. Now, as he's walking away with Bilal, Umayyah, to taunt the situation and to taunt Bilal, says, you know, this person's so worthless, essentially, that even if you had given me one, one unit of currency, like a dollar, I would have given this person to you. That's how worthless he was to me. That he's trying to, and Abu Bakr anhu says back to Umayyah, that even if you had asked me for a hundred units of currency, like whatever, a thousand dollars, I would have been ready to give it to, for this person. That was the status. That he, that's, that's how he held Bilal radiallahu anhu in his eyes. He freed Bilal. He freed Khabbab. Khabbab was that companion of the Prophet sallallahu who was tortured tremendously. His, his, uh, the people that had owned him, they would play, they would make him bare, bare, without clothed. And they would put, uh, put him in iron armor. Like, in, and, and then they would put him on the, the hot ground of Mecca. 
and, and, and they would uh, make him lie down and his back essentially would melt through. That's how hot it was. And, and then they would take these iron rods and they would beat him. You know, there was one occasion where uh, in the Khilafah of Umar, Umar had walked into a gathering and he saw Khabbab there and he said, there's no one who is more worthy of being in this gathering, meaning no one has gone through more suffering and difficulty in their life except maybe Bilal. Khabbab was next in line. And so then Khabbab anhu stood up and he raised uh, his shirt and you could see the grooves in his back from all the tortures that he had suffered many decades ago. So Abu Bakr freed Bilal, he freed Khabbab, he freed Amr ibn Fuhayra. This was a companion, this was the companion that was the guide of the Prophet and Abu Bakr from Mecca to Medina in the Hijrah. His name was Amr ibn Fuhayra. He freed a slave by the name of Zunayra, female slaves as well. There was one by the name of Zunayra. She accepted Islam early. And she was a slave who was beaten so badly by her masters that she became blind. And then he freed another person by the name of Lubayna. This was the slave of Umar ibn Khattab before he accepted Islam. And Umar was a very powerful person. And it's said that before he accepted Islam, you know, he had regrets in his life of things that he had done. Like for instance, his daughter that he had, you know, there's, there's different regrets that he had. Uh, and it's said that he used to hit her and beat her so badly that he would become tired from beating her. And he would say that the only reason that you're not being continuously beat is because I need a break. That's how much difficulty she had faced. So these are examples of Sahaba that Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu went around and freed. And there's more. Just one by one he would go and facilitate the freedom of these people and this enabled these individuals to do great things in deen. I mean, who, I mean, who would have imagined you know, the value of Bilal later in life? Who would have imagined the value of Khabbab? And who would have imagined the value of Amr ibn Fahira, the guide of the Hijrah? Meaning that you know, the, the journey the Prophet from Mecca to Medina, which was essential for Islam to continue and propagate, this goes into the account of Amr ibn Fuhayra. And all of the deeds that these people have now performed because of their freedom, it all goes back into the account of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. Right? Because he facilitated their freedom, now they're able to perform deeds. And now because they're able to perform deeds, we mentioned the hadith at the beginning, man ala khair, or ala khair The one who guides toward good is like the doer. So all of their deeds and, 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 and anything that they contributed, anything they contributed toward Islam and their own personal worship and practices, etc., all of that goes into the account of Abu Bakr anhu. So now we immediately see how Abu Bakr anhu elevates in his status simply by, bring, by facilitating deen for other people. We mentioned so he was the great emancipator, right? And, and this is a big deal. Because emancipation here in this country happened 150, 160 years ago. Not that long ago. I mean, Bilal, anhu, if he was around 200 years ago, he would still be a slave if it was, if this, if it was this society. And this is a black Abyssinian slave whom Abu Bakr anhu chose or decided shouldn't he be enslaved. And he freed this individual. right? And look at what he ended up contributing. And all of that goes into account of Abu Bakr. Anhu. So he was, the great, he was the great emancipator of our ummah. Right? And in addition to that, the second thing that he did in facilitating deen is he brought people toward deen immediately after accepting Islam. So I mentioned that when 
the Prophet repeated Nubuwa and Abu Bakr came to Prophet and he had heard that there was this prophethood he was talking about, he immediately accepted Islam. He didn't he didn't question the Prophet at all. In fact, later on, much later, the Prophet says in Medina that every single person that I had mentioned this message to had some hesitation or had some question about it. The only person who accepted this without any hesitation, the only person was Abu Bakr He did not have any questions whatsoever or any hesitation. He accepted it. You know, he was someone who the uh, it said about him that when the Prophet would speak, before the Prophet would finish his sentence, Abu Bakr would say, Sadaqtuka, Sadaqtuka, you've spoken the truth, you've spoken the truth. Even though he doesn't even know what the Prophet was going to say, like his sentence wasn't being completed, he still would say it because he's like, whatever comes out of his mouth is going to be true. So he accepted Islam. And immediately after accepting Islam, what's, what's remarkable is that he then chose to bring other people to Islam as well. And he didn't wait. Th- this is what's remarkable. In Al-Bidayah wa Nihaya, which is one of the most famous books of Islamic history, it's written by Ibn Kathir, right? The famous tafsir, Ibn Kathir. He, he has this history. And he mentions that a day, either the first day or the next day, but we know it's that, that first day that Abu Bakr accepted Islam, or one day later, he brought four people toward Islam, toward the Prophet ﷺ to accept Islam. And who were these four individuals? They were giants. Uthman bin Affan radiallahu anhu. He accepted Islam. We know Uthman, who became the third Khalifa of our Ummah, and the contributions that he made to our Deen, the expansion that occurred towards Cyprus and Armenia and North Africa, and the bashfulness and modesty by which he would carry himself, and the, and the finances that he would contribute toward causes. This was Uthman radiallahu anhu. And it was just immediately after Abu Bakr accepted Islam that within a day he took Uthman to the Prophet Sallallahu and Uthman radiallahu anhu accepted Islam. There was Falaha ibn Ubaidillah. This was a companion of the Prophet Sallallahu who was who uh, was someone who made tremendous contributions. This was the companion who in the battle of Uhud when the Muslims were now in the second phase of the battle where they're now being surrounded by the, by the Quraysh and the Kuffar and this was this was the talha that uh, protected the Prophet ﷺ directly, meaning there was one phase where Prophet ﷺ's foot had gotten stuck in the hole and his life was on the line, and it was talha who reached in and pulled it out and protected the Prophet ﷺ. And later in the battle, this was that talha who, when the Prophet ﷺ was being attacked, you, you remember the Prophet ﷺ was physically hurt during this battle, right? I mean, his, he broke his tooth. He had his art, his uh, face shield had had penetrated his skin. You know, he he had gone through significant difficulty in this battle. This was a talha that at one point he grabbed the Prophet ﷺ, uh, with his left arm and he kind of protected him like this. And then and he was basically fending off uh, anyone that was attacking uh, physically. And and the narrations mention that he took in that time roughly seventy wounds to his body, stabs pierces, etc. 70 wounds to his body in protecting the Prophet This was Talha ibn Ubaidullah. Talha on day one, Abu Bakr, this is earth, not much going back to Mecca. Talha was someone that Abu Bakr immediately took to the Prophet and Talha anhu accepted Islam. Zubair ibn al-Awwam. Zubair was a very famous companion. He was a companion the Prophet said that if the, the, every Prophet has a disciple, every Prophet has a disciple and my disciple is Zubair. My disciple is Zubair, Zubair ibn al-Awwam. This was the father of Abdullah uh, ibn Zubair. Zubair ibn al-Awwam, again, day one, he was like 15 or 16 years old. Abu Bakr who took him to the Prophet Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas. This was that companion 
who took Islam to China, the Sahabi that took Islam to China, and the 30 plus million Muslims that are there, all of this started from Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas. This was the companion. So these four individuals, Uthman, Talha, Zubair. By the way, Talha and Zubair, the Prophet said in a hadith that these two are my neighbors in Jannah. So these four individuals, Uthman, Talha, Zubair, Sa'ad, all within day one, day one of Abu Bakr accepting Islam, he didn't wait. He didn't say, let me think about this and, and, and reflect upon this further to see if this is something I should be sharing with other people. Day one of accepting Islam, he took these four individuals and he had them accept Islam at the hands of the Prophet It's remarkable. So all of what they've done now, because he facilitated their deen, man ala khair, whoever guides toward good. Now all of what is in their account goes into the account of Abu Bakr as well. All of what's in their account goes into the account of Abu Bakr, the account of Zubayr, Talha, Uthman, Sa'ad ibn Abi Qas. These are big deal companions. These are big deal companions who we still remember today. This, that was day one. On day two, right, this is now day two, he takes an additional two companions uh, that, that are mentioned in this, in this particular uh, narration of history. He takes a companion by the name of Abdurrahman bin Awf radiallahu anhu. Abdurrahman bin Awf was one of the companions who was one of the wealthiest companions. Meaning, if, you want, if we wanted to look at the example of a, of a companion that gave the most wealth toward, toward deen, it was Abdurrahman bin Awf. There was, one, there was one need that the Prophet had asked for, and Abdurrahman bin Awf donated, in, in one occurrence, he donated 500 horses and 1,500 camels. And just to give you an idea, a, a camel at that time was the value of a car. And a horse was the value of a luxury car, right? So he had so much wealth that he donated 500 horses and 1,500 camels in one occasion. If we were to calculate his value today, he, he would be a multi-billionaire. That's how, that's how wealthy he was. But his beginnings of Islam were day two, Abu Bakr taking him to the Prophet and, and him accepting Islam. And the second companion by the name of Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah. Abu Ubaidah Amr ibn Jarrah was a very famous companion. He was someone who became the governor of Syria at one point. This companion also, on day two, Abu Bakr took him to the Prophet So we mentioned six people within the first two days. What's remarkable is that these six individuals make up six of the Ashara Mubashara, the ten people the Prophet guaranteed paradise. And if you include Abu Bakr, that's now seven. Meaning, Six of the greatest companions, six of the ten that the Prophet guaranteed Jannah for, which means that they're very special people. These six individuals, the Ashara Mubashara, uh, were, became Muslim at the hands of Abu Bakr. Meaning, he facilitated deen for six people that are guaranteed Jannah. That's remarkable. Now, all of this is going into his account. All of what they do in their life is going into his account. And then the downstream effects of what they've contributed as well. It doesn't just end there. On day two, I mentioned, I mentioned these six, I'm separating them. There was another companion, a very special companion that he, that he took to the Prophet This companion, was the, by, he goes by the name of Arqam bin Abil Arqam. Arqam bin Abil Arqam. This was the companion in whose home Islam was initially being taught. Right? The, the home is called Darul Arqam. You may have heard this name before. In fact, the... Darul Arqam was a house in which Islam was initially privately being practiced and privately being taught by the Prophet It was the house of Arqam that was a companion. In fact, today, if you've, if you've gone to, to Mecca and you go between Safa and Marwa, at the base of Safa is where Darul Arqam was. You, there's actually a marker. You can actually see it. And not the house, but you can see where it is roughly. 
So Arqam bin Abil Arqam opened up his home for Islam to be taught and propagated, right, privately initially. And there were giants who accepted Islam in Darul Arqam. Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhu, this companion of the Prophet ﷺ, who was the second Khalifa, and the Prophet ﷺ said about him, that if there were to be a companion after me, it would have been Umar. That's how special Umar was. Umar accepted Islam at Darul Arqam. There's a companion by the name of Mus'ab bin Umayr, the flower of Islam, the individual who was the first person who took Islam. The Prophet ﷺ appointed him to go to Medina and teach people of Medina Islam. At the hands of Mus'ab, Sa'ad ibn Ubadah, Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh, the leaders of Medina, and then all of their people then accepted Islam. So all of that goes into Mus'ab's account. But where did Mus'ab take his uh, Islam? At Darul Arqam. Which means Arqam bin Abul Arqam gets that reward. But where did Abul Arqam, uh, how did uh, Arqam bin Abul Arqam accept Islam? Abu Bakr anhu. So now all of that downstream effect is going into the account of, the, of Abu Bakr anhu. And in addition to that, at Darul Arqam, there were two individuals, one was Ammar bin Yasir, Suhaib al-Rumi, these, these are two other people who, who landed at the door of Darul Arqam and accepted Islam at the hands of the Prophet You know, these are very special companions. And their Islam was because of Arqam, and Arqam's Islam was because of Abu Bakr, which means all of these giants, right, the point that we're trying to mention here isn't, isn't to go over this long list of, of, of Sahaba, it's to highlight to us that all of the goodness that they accomplished in their life was due to Abu Bakr, which means all of it, according to Hadith Prophet all of it goes into the account of Abu Bakr. So this is why he was able to become such a successful individual in his early years. And this is why we remember him today, because he facilitated deen for so many people. Whether it be that he took them to the Prophet to accept Islam, and then now they made major contributions, or because he emancipated them, they became free, so now they were able to practice deen. So this is one this is one key in the life of Abu Bakr If we were to talk about his qualities, this is one key quality was that he facilitated deen for people. And so this is something that we should think about in our own life as well. Like what role, how can we bring this quality into our life? How can we facilitate for other people as well? So I'm going to sort of wrap up in the next 10 minutes and just talk about three sort of general principles that we learn from this. The first is, you know, you can take maybe take home points. The first is, for us, our success in deen lies not necessarily in what we do for ourselves, but rather what we enable others to do. It's not dependent on just what I can accomplish myself, but rather what I'm able to encourage other people to do. Look, what I mean by this is I can depend on myself and my own deeds or I can multiply that by encouraging other people to do good. So for instance, if I have the opportunity to pray Salah, that's the Salah of one person and inshallah it'll be accepted. But if I encourage a few other people to become consistent in their prayer, let's say at three or four people I influence, now all of the prayers that they perform, all of what they do also go into my account. That's powerful. And without any, without any uh, loss in, in their reward, it's not like because I get their reward, they're not going to get it. The hadith doesn't exclude this. They also get that reward as well. So we should think about this as well. Meaning if I have a personal goal that I want to advance myself in, in deen and make progress, 
then it isn't simply going to be based off of how much salah can I perform, how much Quran can I do, how much charity can I give, how much salah can I, how much can I go to the masjid, how many fasts can I keep. It's not just dependent on that. Our success also depends on how many other people can I get to do this. In fact, we can, we, one can argue that it's even easier to go about it this way. I mean, it's difficult for me, for instance, to wake up and pray tahajjud consistently. But if I can convince three other people to do it, <laughs> then all of what they do is into my account as well. It doesn't give me an excuse to not make an effort, right? But there's no reason I can't get the reward of them doing it. Just because I'm not practicing something doesn't mean that I can't encourage other people to practice something. This is not a sign of hypocrisy. It's my own recognition of my own weakness, which is that I'm limited in what I can do. I'm limited. I know my own weaknesses and I know my strengths. And maybe I can't, I'm not someone who can come to the masjid three times a day. But if I can get someone else to come to the masjid three times a day, all of that reward goes into my account too. Maybe I'm not someone who has the ability to give large amounts of wealth and sadaqah. Fine. But if I can encourage other people to give their wealth and sadaqah, uh, uh, for a good cause, now that goes into my account as well. Maybe I don't have the flexibility in my time to, to serve people. You know, Then if I can at least encourage other people to do that, then I'll get that reward as well. So we should push people toward goodness because when we do so, we also get that same reward. It's an easy way to make quick progress in deen so that we're not having to depend solely on ourselves. And when we know when we leave, uh, when we depend on just ourselves, we know how weak we are and how at times lazy we can be. But, but we, can, we can use this hadith to our advantage and taking from the example of Abu Bakr who facilitate deen for other people because it ultimately allows me to benefit. Just to highlight how, how special of a person Abu Bakr was, Umar who made a statement, it's a very deep statement, he said about him that if we were to take the iman of Abu Bakr and put it on one side of the scale and then take the iman of the rest of the ummah and put it on the other side, his iman would outweigh the iman of, of, of anyone else. And another hadith, the Prophet says that uh, about Abu Bakr that uh, you know, once Aisha anha was with the Prophet and she looked at the, stars, the, the, the stars in the sky and the whole sky was just lit with stars you know, and not like here we live in a suburban area or, or, or in a city where you can't really see stars but if you go out let's say two three hours north or west of here and it's and there's and it's a it's a new moon and you look in the sky you'll just see thousands and thousands of stars so she asked the prophet is there anyone whose deeds account for all of the the stars in the sky right the quantity wise so the prophet said umar and uh, she kind of had this look on her face a little bit saddened because she wanted him to say her father so she, he looks at her and he says, is something wrong? You know, what happened? So she says, I was hoping you would say my father. So he said that not, the, the, the rough lesson from this is that even one, uh, that the, all of what Umar did doesn't even equate to one day in the life of Abu Bakr. Right? So this was, I mean, but, but it makes sense. Because if Abu Bakr was continuously receiving the rewards of, hundreds, of thousands of people that he guided toward Islam, his, his account is just rising. He's not just dependent on his own individual deeds. He's been, he's continuously, even to this day, he's continuously re receiving the, the benefit and a reward that comes from all of the people that he facilitated deen for. I mean, every adhan that's called goes to Bilal, on whose credit. But Bilal's credit goes to Abu Bakr. You know, all the adhans that are happening in the world. You know, the adhan that happens in Mecca. I mean, just think about the Islam that's present throughout the world. I mean, all of that funnels back into Abu Bakr. He was the master facilitator, and he, at one point he was the great emancipator. So the first take home is that 
for us, our success lies not just in what we do for ourselves, but what, but, but, but what we enable others to do. The second is, even if we feel like we're limited in what we can offer other people, maybe sometimes we think that, you know, I don't have knowledge or I'm not someone who's eloquent in my speech or even my example, uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't remove this responsibility from me. I still have this responsibility. Look, what, what I find very interesting is Abu Bakr himself, if he was here today, he would be speaking, I wouldn't be. If he was here today, he would be undoubtedly the leader of the ummah. All, every single, I mean, we all would look up to him, right? He, there, he, would, he is as close to the Prophet as we would ever get. Despite this proximity to Prophet when people came to Abu Bakr, like Talha, I mentioned Talha on day one, what happened was he was on a trip and he came back and he had heard about this Nubuwa thing and he went to the door of Abu Bakr. What did Abu Bakr do? He could have said, okay, accept the kalima la ilaha illallah. That's not what he did. He took Talha to the door of the Prophet and took him to Prophet and there Talha accepted Islam. Meaning even Abu Bakr, despite his qualifications at this phase in his life, he wasn't assuming the responsibility of, 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 of directly guiding people, but he was taking people toward guidance. All of us have that ability, right? All of us at least have that ability, which is that even if I can't myself provide a benefit to someone because I feel limited in my knowledge or my ability to, to, to make this contribution, at the bare minimum, I can at least take people to, to sources of benefit. So that could mean, for instance, the ulama of our time who are the inheritors. It could be the imam. It could be the masjid, which is a place of guidance. If we physically facilitate taking people to these locations where there's going to be benefit, Right? Or physically facilitating things for people We're following the sunnah of Abu Bakr anhu, And we're also still able to get that reward No one is exempt from this And no one can't play the role that Abu Bakr played in the early days Irrespective of where we feel we are in our deen It applies to every single Muslim period And, and what's amazing too is if, if we think about it like When Abu Bakr um, When, 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 he, when he facilitated for so many people, whether it was as an emancipator or whether it was as someone who took people to deen, like, did he know who these people were going to become eventually? Like, did he know that Bilal would become Bilal, who is, is an inspiration for every single person? And, any, and, 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 and we use him as the, as the model for us in terms of the Adhan. And he's the, I mean, any black Muslim in the world uses him as... Uh, 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 as a source of inspiration I mean did Abu Bakr know that this was going to be the eventual status of Bilal or Abdul Rahman bin Auf or Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas I mean he didn't know this right so, so similarly we don't know who's going to become that gem who's then going to continuously rack up points in our own account we don't know our job is to do it and Allah Ta'ala I mean there's a possibility that there's gems within the community that will, whose rewards will then go into our account so the second, the, the first take-home point I mentioned was that our success lies not just in what we do for ourselves, but we enable others to do. The second is, even if we are limited in what we can offer, uh, we 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 have we can still a take people to places or individuals where they can become guided. That's that that responsibility is not lifted. Or number two, we can remove hardships from people, from Muslims in particular, but people in general. We can remove hardships so that they can serve Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala properly. I mean, this is what Abu Bakr did, right? He removed hardships from people that were enslaved, and this enabled them to worship Allah. So all of us have the ability to do this. The third take-home point is um, that we should want the the gift of Deen 
that we have been given, we should want to share this with those people that are around us. We should want to share it with those people that are around us. What do I mean? Um, if you look at Abu Bakr, عنه, he had the Prophet him. He had Islam. He didn't really need to do anything more. Like if the Prophet were here today, I would, we would just be with him and, and that would be it. We'd be, we don't need anything else. Like wh- why would I need to go tell everybody else about the Prophet I'd rather keep him to myself because he's, he's guidance for me and I'm not, I mean, the more I have to tell the people, the more I have to share, uh, I have to share the Prophet right? So, I mean, he already was the best friend of the Prophet He already had the Prophet you know, at, at his, uh, 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 for whatever he would need. Despite this, he himself felt that he had been given this gift of Islam in his heart. And he wanted to share it with every other person that he can think of. Right? He wanted to share it with as many people as he could. So, similarly for us, you know, we should deeply reflect in our own lives. If we've been given the gift of Islam and given the gift of deen, we shouldn't be content with us just having it and saying, look, I already have my Qur'an, I have my masjid that I can go to and pray when I need to, I have my Ramadan so I can experience a nice spiritual uh, rejuvenation, I have my i'tikaf, you know, everything's taken care of for me, so I'm going to keep it to myself. It should be that if I've been given this gift from Allah, then I should want every other person I interact with to also have this. It starts with a simple intention, but it extends beyond this as well, right? Which is that I, I, I genuinely should want, if Allah has given me something so special, I genuinely should want every other person that I interact with to also have something as special. And that was the approach of Abu Bakr. He already had something special. He had Islam, he had deen, he was an early follower, and he was the best friend of the Prophet He had no need to have to share this with anyone else. But he made it a point to share it with anyone and everyone that he could because this was something that, was, that, that, that he appreciated so much that he couldn't help but want other people to have and taste what he was tasting as well. So this is Abu Bakr anhu as a facilitator, right? And and uh, I hope that through this first phase of his life, which is the early days of Mecca, we'll 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 take this particular quality from his life and, and try to inculcate it in his life, in our own lives, and just keeping in mind the Hadith of the Prophet right? Because this should be the the underlying uh, or the overlying uh, principle of today's discussion, which is that. Whoever guides toward goodness, whoever facilitates goodness, and other people then do good because of that, because of us, then we also get that same reward. It's like the doer himself. And we see this exemplified more than anyone else. If we look at the lives of anyone else, we see this exemplified more by Abu Bakr anhu than anyone else. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us the tawfiq to appreciate the, the value of this hadith. May Allah ta'ala allow us to facilitate deen in our own life. Uh, and in, in those around us, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us the tawfiq to share this gift that He's been given us with, with anyone that we interact with. Inshallah, tomorrow evening we'll talk about Abu Bakr's life as the uh, close friend and lover of the Prophet, the father of the Prophet. And then on Sunday, inshallah, after Dhuhr, we'll talk about his um, role um, as, uh, as a leader, as a leader, especially after the death of the Prophet. Jazakumullah khair.